Chapter Two Arizona's Yesterday by John Caddy and Basil Woon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Posante. Following the Argonauts. So it's westward ho for the land of worth, where the is, not was, is vital, where brawn for praise must win the earth, nor risk its newborn title. Where to dam a man is to say he ran, and heedless seeds are sown, where the thrill of strife is the spice of life, and the creed is, guard your own. Wound. When the fast mail steamer which had carried us from the Isthmus of Panama, we had journeyed to the Isthmus from New Orleans and the little transport of McClellan, steamed through the Golden Gate and anchored off the Presidio, I looked with great eagerness and curiosity on the wonderful city, known in those days as the toughest hole on earth, of which I had read and heard so much, and which I had so longed to see. I saw a city rising on terraces from the smooth waters of a glorious bay, whose wavelets were tempered by a sunshine that was as brilliant as it was ineffective against the keen sea breeze of winter. The fog that had obscured our sight outside the Golden Gate was now gone, vanished like the mist-wraiths of the long-ago philosophers, and the glorious city of San Francisco was revealed to view. I say glorious, but the term must be understood to apply only to the city's surroundings, which were in truth magnificent. She looked like some imperial goddess, her forehead encircled by the faint band of mist that still lingered caressingly to the mountain tops, her countenance glistening with the dew on the green hill slopes, her garments quaintly fashioned, her by the civilization that had brought her into being her slippers the lustrous waters of the bay itself later i came to know that she too was a goddess of moods and dangerous moods a coquette to some love to others and to many a heartless vampire that sucked from them their hard-wrung dust scattered their gold to the four winds of avarice that ever circled enticingly about the vortex of shallow joys that the city harbored and after intoxicating them with her beauty and her wine flung them aside to make ready for the next comer too well had san francisco merited the title i give it in the opening lines of this chapter some say that the earthquake and the fire came like vitriol cast on the features of a beautiful woman for the prostitution of her charms but i lost little to her lures am not one to judge my memories of san francisco are at any rate a trifle hazy now for it's many many years since i last saw the sun set over the marin hills an era has passed since the glamour of the coast of high barbary claimed my youthful attention but i remember a city as evil within as it was lovely without a city where gathered the very dregs of humanity from the four corners of the earth what port said is now san francisco was then only worse for every crime that is committed in the dark alleys of the suez port or the equally murky cajones of the pestoles of mexico four were committed in the beautiful californian town when i first went there women as well as men carried hardware strapped outside and scarcely one who had not at some time found this precaution useful the city abounded with footpads and ruffians of every nationality and description whose prices for cutting a throat or rolling a stiff depended on the cupidity of the moment or on the quantity of liquor that capacious stomachs held scores of killings occurred and excited little comment 
Thousands of men were daily passing in and out of the city, drawn by the lure of the Sierra goldfields. Some of these came back with the joy of dreams come true and full pokes hung around their necks. Some came with the misery of utter failure in their hearts. And some, alas, they were many, returned not at all. The Barbary Coast was fast gaining for itself an unenviable reputation throughout the world. Every time one walked on Pacific Street with any money in pocket, he took his life in his hand. Guard your own, was the accepted creed of the time, and woe to him who could not do so. Gold was thrown about like water. The dancing girls made fabulous sums, as commissions on drinks their consorts could be persuaded to buy. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent nightly in the great temples devoted to gambling, and their men risked, on the luck of a moment, or the turn of a painted wheel, fortunes wrung from the soil by months and sometimes years of terrific work in the diggings. The most famous gamblers of the West at the time made their headquarters in San Francisco, and they came from all countries. England contributed not a few of these gentlemen traders in the caprices of fortune. France her quota. Germany very few, and China many. But these last possessed the dives, the lowest kind of gambling places, where men went only when they were desperate and did not care. We were not at this time, however, to be given an opportunity to see as much San Francisco as most of us would have liked. After a short stay at the Presidio, we were sent to Wilmington, then a small port in the southern part of the state, but now incorporated in the great city of Los Angeles. Here we drew our horses for the long trek across the desert to our future home in the territory of Arizona. There was no railroad at that time in California, the line not even having been surveyed as far as San Jose, which was already a city, but instead of being, as now, a marketplace for a dozen fertile and beautiful valleys, she was then merely an outfitting point for parties of travelers, prospectors, cattlemen and the like, and was also a station and terminus for various stage lines. Through San Jose, too, came those of the gold seekers bound for the high Sierras on the border of the desert, who had not taken the Sacramento River route, and had decided to brave instead the dangers of the trail through the fertile San Joaquin, up to the Feather River, and thus into the diggings about Virginia City. Gold had been found by that time in Nevada, and hundreds of intrepid men were facing the awful Mojave in Nevada deserts, blazing hot in the daytime and icy cold at night, to seek the new El Dorados. Since this is a book about pioneers, and since I am one of them, it is fitting to stay a while and consider what civilization owes to these daring souls who formed a vanguard of her army. Cecil Rhodes opened an empire by mobilizing a black race. Jim Hill opened another when he struck westward with steel rails. But the pioneers of the early gold rushes created an empire of immense riches, with no other aid than their own gnarled hands and sturdy hearts. They opened up a country as vast as it was rich, and wrested from the very bosom of Mother Earth treasures that had been in her jealous keeping for ages before the era of man. A brave sudden death, death from thirst and starvation, death from prowling savages, death from the wild creatures, all that the work of man might flourish where they had not feared to tread. It is the irony of fate that these old pioneers, many of whom hated civilization and were fleeing from her guiles, should have been the advance guard of the very power they sought to avoid. The vast empire of western America is strewn with the bones of these men. Some of them lie in kindly resting places, the grass over their graves kept green by loving friends. Some lie uncared for in potter's fields or in cemeteries of homes for the aged, and some, a vast horde, still lie bleached and grim, the hot sand drifted over them by the desert winds. But wherever they lie, all honored pioneer. 
There should be a day set apart which every American should revere the memory of those men of long ago who hewed away for the soft paths that faulted the generation of today. What San Bernardino is now to the westbound traveler, Wilmington was then, the end of the desert. From Wilmington eastward stretched one tremendous ocean of sand, interspersed here and there by majestic mountains in the fastness of which little fertile valleys with clear mountain streams were to be discovered later by the pioneer homesteaders where now are miles upon miles of yellow-fruited orange and lemon groves, trained to care and knowledge of a later generation of scientific farmers, where then only dreary, barren wastes, with only the mountains and clumps of sagebrush, soapweed, cacti, creosote bushes, and mesquite to break the everlasting monotony of the prospect. Farming then, indeed, was almost as little thought of as irrigation, for men's minds were fixed on the star of whitest brilliancy, gold. Men even made fortunes in the diggings and returned east and bought farms, never realizing that what might be pushed above the soil of California was destined to prove a far greater consequence than anything men would ever find hidden beneath. The march to Arizona was both difficult and dangerous, and was to be attempted safely only by large parties. Water was scarce and wells few and far between, and there were several stretches as, for instance, that between what are now known as the Imperial Mountains and Yuma of more than sixty miles with no water at all. The well at Dos Palmas was not dug until a later date. Across these stretches the traveler had to depend on what water he could manage to pack in a canteen strung around his waist or on his horse or mule. On the march were often to be seen, as they are still, those wonderful desert mirages of which so much has been written by explorers and scientists. Sometimes these took the form of lakes, fringed with palms, which tantalized and ever kept mockingly at a distance. Many the desert traveler who has been cruelly deceived by these mirages. Yuma, of which I have just spoken, is famed for many reasons. For one thing, the story that the United States Army officers raised the temperature of the place 30 degrees to be relieved from duty there has been laughed at wherever Americans have been wont to congregate. And that old story told by Sherman of the soldier who died at Yuma after living a particularly vicious existence here below, and who soon afterward telegraphed from Hades for his blankets, and also done much to heighten the reputation of the little city, which sometimes still has applied to it the distinction of being the hottest place in the United States. This, however, is scarcely correct, as many places in the Southwest, Needles in California, and the Imperial Valley, are examples, have often demonstrated higher temperatures than have ever been known at Yuma. A summer at the little Colorado River town is quite hot enough, however, please the most tropical savage. It may be remarked here, in justice to the rest of the state, that the temperature of Yuma is not typical of Arizona as a whole. In the region I now live, the Sonoyta Valley in the southeastern part of the state, and in portions around Prescott, the summer temperatures are markedly cool and temperate. Yuma, however, is not famed for temperature alone. In fact, that feature of its claim to notice is least to be considered. Real noteworthy fact about Yuma from a historical point of view is that, as Arizona City, it was one of the earliest settled points in the territory and was at first easily the most important. The route of major portion of the 49ers took them across the Colorado River where Fort Yuma was situated on the California side, and the trend of exploration, business, and commerce a few years later flowed westward to Yuma over the picturesque plains of the Gadsden Purchase. Famous California column ferried itself across Colorado at Yuma and later on the overland mail came through the settlement. It is now a division point on the Southern Pacific Railway just across the line from California and has a population of three or four thousand. 
At the time I first saw the place, there was only Fort Yuma on the California side of the river and a small settlement on the Arizona side called Arizona City. It had formerly been called Colorado City, but the name was changed when the town was permanently settled. There were two ferries in operation at Yuma when their company arrived there, one of them run by the peaceable Yuma Indians, and the other by a company headed by Don Diego Yeager and Hartshorn. Fort Yuma had been established in 1851 by Major Heitzelman, USA, but on the scurvy, see DeLong's History of Arizona, and the great difficulty in getting supplies, the Colorado River being then uncharted for traffic, it was abandoned and not permanently re-established until a year later, when Major Heitzelman returned from San Diego. The town site of Colorado City was laid out in 1854, but floods wiped out the town with the result that a permanent settlement called Arizona City was not established until about 1862, four years before I reached there. first steamboat to reach Yuma with supplies was the Uncle Sam, which arrived in 1852. Of all this I can tell, of course, only by hearsay, but there is no doubt that the successful voyage of the Uncle Sam to Yuma established the importance of that place and gave it preeminence over any other shipping point in the territories for a long time. Till the coming of the railroad, supplies for Arizona were shipped from San Francisco to the mouth of Colorado and ferried from there up the river to Yuma, being there transferred to long wagon trains which traveled across the plains to Tucson, which was then the distributing point for the whole territory. Tucson was, of course, the chief city. I say city only in courtesy, for it was such in importance only, its size being smaller than an ordinary eastern village. Prescott which was the first territorial capital, Tubac, considered by many the oldest settled town in Arizona, near which the famous mines worked by Sylvester Maury were located, Arenberg, an important stage point, Sacaton, in the Pima and Maricopa Indian country, and other small settlements, such as Apache Pass, which was a fort, were already in existence. To get some purchase having been a very recent date, most of the population was Indian, after which came the Mexicans and Spaniards and then the Americans, who arrogantly termed themselves the Whites, although the Spaniards possessed fully as white a complexion as the average pioneer from the eastern states. Until recently, the Indian dominated the white man in Arizona in point of numbers, but fortunately only one Indian race, the Apache, showed unrelenting hostility to the white man and his works. Had all the Arizona Indians been as hostile as were the Apaches, probabilities are that the settlement of Arizona by the Whites would have been of far more recent date, for in instance after instance the Americans in Arizona were obliged to rely on the help of the peaceful Indians to combat the rapacious Apaches. Yuma is the place where the infamous Doc Glanton and his gang operated. This was long before my time, and as the province of this book is merely to tell the story of life and the territory as I saw it, it has no place within these pages. It may, however, be mentioned that Glanton was the leader of a notorious gang of freebooters who established a ferry across the Colorado at Yuma and used it as a hold-up scheme to trap unwary immigrants. The Yuma Indians also operated a ferry for which they had hired as pilot a white man, whom some asserted to have been a deserter from the United States Army. One day, Glanton and his gang, angered at the successful rivalry of the Indians, fell on them and slew the pilot. The Glanton gang was subsequently wiped out by the Indians in retaliation. When the Gila City gold rush set in, Yuma was the point to which the adventurers came to reach the new city. I have heard that as many as 3,000 gold seekers congregated at this find, but nothing is now to be seen of the former town but a few old deserted shacks 
and some Indian wickiups. Gold is still occasionally found in small quantities along the Gila River near this point, but the immense placer deposits have long since disappeared, although experts have been quoted as saying that the company brave enough to explore the fastness of the mountains back of the Gila at this point will probably be rewarded by finding rich gold mines. I will not dwell on the hardships of that desert march from Yuma to Tucson, for which the rigors of the Civil War had fortunately prepared most of us. Further than to say, it was many long, weary days before we finally came in sight of the old Pueblo. In Tucson, I became, soon after our arrival, twenty years old. I was a fairly hardy youngster, too. We camped in Tucson on a piece of ground in the center of town, and soon after our arrival, we set to work making a clean, orderly camp park out of the wilderness of creosote bushes and mesquite. I remember that for some offense against the powers of the day, I was then serving time for a short while, and among other things, I cut shrub on the side of Tucson's military plaza with an inelegant piece of iron chain dangling uncomfortably from my left leg. Oh, I wasn't a saint in those days any more than I am particularly bright candidate for wings and harp now. I gave my superior officers fully as much trouble as the rest of them. Tucson's military plaza, it may be mentioned here, was, as stated, cleared by Company C, 1st United States Cavalry, and that body of troops is the only lot of soldiery that ever camped on that spot, which is now historic. In after years it was known as Camp Lowell, and that name is still applied to a fort some seven miles east of Tucson. Captain Dean had not come with us to Arizona, having been taken ill in California and invalided home. Lieutenant Vale, or as he was entitled to be called, Brevet Major Vale, commanded Company C in his absence, and he had under him as fearless a set of men as could be found anywhere in the country in those days. Vale himself was the highest type of officer. Stern and unbending where discipline was concerned, and eminently courageous. Second Lieutenant Winters was a man of the same stamp, and both men became well known in the territory within a few months after their arrival because of their numerous and successful forays against marauding Indians. Vale is alive yet, or was a short time ago. After some weeks in Tucson, which was then a typical western town peopled by miners, assayers, surveyors, tradespeople, a stray banker or two, and last but not least by any means, gamblers, we removed to Old Camp Grant, which was situated several hundred yards downstream from the point where the Aravapai Creek runs into the San Pedro. Among others, whom I remember as living in Tucson or near neighborhood in 1866, were Henry Glassman, Tom Yerkes, Lord and Williams, Pete Kitchen, hmm, Tongue, the Kelsey Boys, Sandy McClatchy, Green Rusk, Frank Hodge, Alex, Levin, Bob Crandall, hmm, Wheat, Smith Turner, Old Pike. Glassman lived most of the time at Tubac. Yerkes owned the settler's store in Tubac. Lord and Williams owned the chief store in Tucson and were agents for the United States Mail. Pete Kitchen was at Portero Ranch, but Pete, who was more feared by the Indians than any white man in the territory, deserves a whole chapter to himself. Tongue was a storekeeper. Green Rusk owned a popular dance house. Hodge and Levin had a saloon. Wheat owned a saloon and afterwards a ranch near Florence. The remainder were mostly gamblers, good fellows every one of them. Old Pike especially was a character whose memory is now finally cherished by every pioneer who knew him. He could win or lose with the same perpetual joviality, but he generally won. The principal gambling game in those days was Mexican Monte, played with 40 cards. Poker was also played a great deal. Kino, Faro, and Roulette were not introduced until later. 
and the same may be said of Penjinji, the Scandinavian game. There were several tribes of Apaches wintering at Camp Grant the winter we went there, if I remember correctly, among them being Tontos and the Ravapais. All of them, however, were under the authority of one chief, Old Eskimism, one of the most bloodthirsty and vindictive of all the old Apache leaders. The government fed these Apaches well during the winter in return for pledges they made to keep the peace. This was due to the altruism of some mistaken gentlemen in the councils of authority in the East who knew nothing of conditions in the territory and who wrongly believed that the word of an Apache Indian would hold good. We who knew the Indian understood differently, but we were obliged to obey orders, even though these were responsible in part for the many Indian tragedies that followed. The Apache was a curious character, by nature a nomad, by temperament a fighter, and from birth a hater of white man. He saw nothing good in the ways of civilization, except that which fed him, and he took that only as a means to an end. Often an Indian chief would solemnly swear to keep the peace with his white brethren for a period of months, and the next day go forth on a marauding expedition and kill as many of his beloved brethren as he could lay his hands on. Every dead white man was a feather in some Apache's headdress, for so they regarded it. One day Chief Eskimezin appeared with a protest from the tribes against the quality of the rations they were receiving. It was early spring, and the protest, as we well knew, was merely his way of saying that the Indians were no longer dependent on what the government offered, could now hunt their own meat. Our commanding officer endeavored to placate the old chief, who went back for a conference with his men. He then reappeared, threw down his rations, the others doing the same, and in a few minutes the entire encampment of Apaches was in the saddle. Some little time after they had gone, Lieutenant Vale, suspecting trouble, sent a man down the trail to investigate. A few miles away was a ranch owned by a man named Israels. The scout found the ranch devastated, with Israels, his wife, and family brutally slain, and all the stock driven off. He reported to Vale, who headed an expedition of retaliation, the first I ever set forth on. We trailed the Indians several days, finally coming up with them, and ended a pitched battle, killing many of them. This was just a sample of the many similar incidents that occurred from time to time throughout the territory. Invariably, the military attempted to find raiders, and sometimes they were successful. And even now there are sometimes simmerings of discontent among the surviving Apaches on their reservation. I find it difficult to believe that their day, and the day of the remainder of the savage Indian race, is gone forever. It was during this stay at Fort Grant that Company C was ordered to escort the 1st Southern Pacific Survey from Apache Pass which was government fort, Sacaton, in the Pima Indian country. The route bounded with hostile patches and was considered extremely dangerous. I have mentioned this as the first Southern Pacific survey, but this does not mean that there were not before that other surveys of a similar character looking to the establishment of a transcontinental railroad route through the territory. As early as 1851, a survey was made across northern Arizona by Captain L. Sickgreaves, approximating nearly the present route of the Santa Fe Railroad. A year or two later, Lieutenant A.W. Whipple made a survey along the line of the 35th degree parallel. Still later, Lieutenant J.G. Park surveyed a line nearly on that of the Southern Pacific Survey. At that time, just before the Gadsden Treaty, territory surveyed was in the Republic of Mexico. These surveys were all made by the order of then-Secretary of War Jefferson Davis, who aroused a storm of protest in the East against his misguided attention to the desolate West. But few statesmen and fewer of the outside public in that day possessed prophetic vision to perceive the future greatness of what were termed 
the arid wastes of Arizona and California. This was shown by the perfect hail of protest that swept through the White House when the terms of the Gadsden Treaty, drawn up by a man who has ministered to a great minor republic, had had ample opportunities to study at his leisure the nature of the country, and the people with whom he dealt came known. This Southern Pacific Survey Party was under the superintendence Chief Engineer Iago, I believe that is the way he spelled his name, who was recognized as one of the foremost men in the line in his country. The size of our party, which included 30 surveyors and surveyors as helpers, in addition to the soldier escort, served to deter the Indians, and we had no trouble that I remember. It is perhaps worthy of note that the railroad, as it was afterwards built, it reached Tucson in 1880, did not exactly follow the line of the survey, not touching at Sagaton. It passed a few miles south of that point, near the famous Casa Grande, where now is a considerable town. Railroad and all other surveying, then, was an exceedingly hazardous job, especially in Arizona, where so many Indian massacres had already occurred, and were still to occur. In fact, any kind of adventure that involved traveling, even for a short distance, whether it was a small prospecting or emigrant's outfit, whether it was a long train on hoofs, laden with goods of the utmost value, had to be escorted by a squad of soldiers, and often by an entire company. Even thus protected, frequent and daring raids were made by the cruel and fearless savages, whose only dread seemed to be starvation and the oncoming of the white man, and who would go to any lengths to get food. Looking back in the light of present-day reasoning, I am bound to say that it would be wrong to blame the Apaches for something their savage and untutored natures could not help. Before the pale-face came to the territory, the Indian was lord of all he surveyed. From the peaks of the mountains down to the distant line of the silvery horizon, he was monarch of the desert and could roam over his demence without interference save from hostile tribes, and into his very being there was born naturally a spirit of freedom, which the white man with all his weapons could never kill. He knew the best hunting grounds, he knew where grew excellent fodder for his horses, he knew where water ran year-round, and in the rainy season he knew where the water holes were to be found. In his wild life there was only the religion of living, and the divinity of freedom. When the white man came, he too found the fertile places, the running water, and the hunting grounds, and he confiscated them in the name of a higher civilization of which the savage knew nothing and desired to know less. Could the Indian then be blamed for his overwhelming hatred of the white man? His was the inferior, the barbaric race, to be sure. But could he be blamed for not believing so? His was a fight against civilization, true, and it was a losing fight, as all such are bound to be, but the Indian did not know what civilization was except that it meant that he was to be robbed of his hunting grounds and stripped of his heritage of freedom. Therefore he fought tirelessly, savagely, demonically, the inroads of the white man into his territory. All that he knew, all that he wished to understand, was that he had been free and happy before the white man had come with his thunder weapons, his fire water, and his mad, mad passion for yellow gold. The Indian could not understand or admit that the white was the superior all-conquering race, and, not understanding, he became hostile and a battling demon. So intense was the hatred of the white man among the Apaches of the period of which I speak, that it was their custom to cut off the noses of any of their women caught in illegal intercourse with a white man. This done, she was driven from her tribe, declared an outcast from her people, and frequently starved to death. I can remember many instances of this exact kind. End of chapter 2